What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We are back. We're nationwide or something to that effect. Welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. Uh, This is the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Are you just joining EWTN? Maybe you've never listened to EWTN, but uh, now that you are looking around and you're you're hearing a program, you yourself are a non-Catholic, maybe you've got some questions about the Catholic faith that um, answers that you've heard from friends or family or co-workers they're just not satisfying you. Let's get the actual answers. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us in Bolivia, uh, you'll want to dial the U.S. country code 1 and then 205-271-2985. And of course, you can always uh, shoot us an email if you'd like. The address for that CTC at EWTN.com, CTC at EWTN.com. Hey, we got the band back together. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Jeff Burson is on social media. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, all you have to do is uh, put that question in the comments box. Jeff will see it. He'll shoot it to us here in Studio One, and hopefully we can answer your question on today's program. I'm Tom Price. Delighted to be back with Dr. David Anders. Tom, good to see you. Good to good, see you. Good to see you, my friend. How was your Christmas holiday? Uh, it was. Uh, it was very nice. It was very familial. It was not terribly restful on a kind of being so familial, but it was good. It was oh, positive. Good. I am so glad to hear that. We're going to lead off with a very interesting question here. This is uh, from Paul. He says Matthew two verses thirteen through fifteen states that after the visit of the Magi, the Holy Family then departs immediately for Egypt, while Luke. 2 verses 21 through 24 says a week after Jesus's birth the holy family is at the temple which i assume means jerusalem to present him to the lord that seems to conflict please explain thank you paul yeah thanks so matthew and luke uh seem to be in conflict that, that that's the that's the that's the problem that we have to address sure and uh the conflict is maybe more than apparent i mean they may be say, saying seemingly irreconcilable things. Uh-huh. Now, there are a couple different ways that you can approach that and that commentators have approached it throughout history. Um, you can take a very traditional approach that uh, would associate this, for example, with St. Augustine in his work, The Harmony of the Gospels. Augustine is not the only person to write A Harmony of the Gospels, but his is celebrated, where uh, a biblical commentator tries to come up with a timeline and, and argue that all of these disparate accounts can, in fact, be laid out coherently in a way that doesn't contradict one another. And so if you want to see a conservative, traditional Catholic commentary that takes that approach, I'd recommend that you uh, look, for example, at Augustine's Harmony of the Gospels. Um, the, there's another approach that emerged also in antiquity, particularly associated with the early Christian writer Origen. Um, Origen, when he encountered apparent contradictions in the literal sense of the text, 
uh, he took that as a clue that the Holy Spirit was prompting him to dive deeper into the allegorical or spiritual reading of the text. And so he, he recognized that there were surface tensions, if you will, in the biblical narrative, but he thought that keyed us in to, to, to deeper spiritual truths that we ought to go, we ought to go plumb. Um, now, the, uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church endorses the idea that there is a spiritual sense of the text, that allegory and the moral reading and the, and the anagogical reading of the text is the appropriate way to engage, and that we're not just to be grounded in the literal. Um, I think modern historical criticism, which is also allowable by Catholic biblical scholars, uh, is, uh, is more willing to grant that there was a kind of a, uh, creativity on the part of the biblical writers in the service of their own particular narratives that have larger theological themes that are in view. Um, so there are there are different ways to handle these problems, and those are three of them. All of them are allowable to Catholics. Paul, thanks so much uh, for your email. Here's one now from Beth. Dr. Anders, I'm preparing for a CCD class of mixed-age children on the sacrament of matrimony. I know all the criteria for a sacramental marriage, free, faithful, fruitful, and total, but I realize that some of their parents, parents of these kiddos, uh, may not be married or only civilly married, so I, I know I need to be careful in my wording. Do you have any advice on how to discuss why it's important to have a sacramental marriage or perhaps a resource? Thank you, Beth. Yeah, thanks. So I need to make a clarification on your criterion of a sacramental marriage, you actually left out the most important one, <clears throat> and that is that in order to have a sacramental marriage, the parties to the marriage must both be baptized. Ah. All right. So you laid out the conditions not for a sacramental marriage, but for a valid marriage. Okay. And we have to distinguish. There are two kinds of marriage in Catholic theology. There's what we call natural marriage, and then there's sacramental marriage. Both kinds of marriage— consists in the lifelong indissoluble union of a man and a woman to one another uh, for the sake of raising a family. So um, th that's you know, the fidelity and the fruitfulness and all those things that you enumerated. Yeah, yeah. Those things can be true of a natural marriage that is not sacramental, and natural marriages are good and proper marriages that the Church recognizes and values. So what would be an example of a natural marriage? Let's say a Catholic person marries an unbaptized person. They marry them in the church. Yeah. That marriage would be valid, but not sacramental. It, was not, it would not be a sacrament. It's not immoral. There's nothing wrong with it. Yeah. But it's not, in fact, a sacrament, right? Let's say you have two Protestants, both of whom are baptized. They don't marry in the Catholic Church, but in view of their baptism, their marriage is both valid and sacramental. Okay? So what we have to, what we have to address are two things, not just why do you want a sacramental marriage, but why do you want a valid marriage? Mm. And then why do you want a sacramental marriage? Now, Tom is giving me the little 30-second mark that tells me the break is coming up, so perhaps I should delay uh, the answer to that question to the other side of the break. Beth, sit tight. We're going to continue uh, answering your email in just a moment here. We'll also be talking with Ellen, a first-time caller from Greer, South Carolina. Linda is Omaha, is in Omaha, rather. She is not Omaha. She is in Omaha. And uh, we're going to get to her question as well, and also one from John uh, listening to us on YouTube this afternoon. Hey, there's lines open for you right now at 833 
288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. We are indeed live on this Monday, the day after New Year's Day, with Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Do stay with us. It's called a communion on this Tuesday afternoon, live here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. So uh, before the break, we were starting to answer Beth's question, which I'll briefly recap here. She says she's preparing for a CCD class Mm -hmm. of mixed-age children on the sacrament of matrimony. And uh, do you have any advice on how to discuss why it's important to have a sacramental marriage or perhaps a resource or two? Yeah, thanks. So before the break, I, I began to draw some distinctions. The Church recognizes that there are good marriages that are not sacramental, namely natural marriages, and that would be the marriage between two non-baptized people or perhaps the marriage of a baptized to a non-baptized person. Those are valid marriages, they're good marriages, they're holy marriages potentially, but they're not sacramental. So let's start with the question of why do you want to be in a real marriage, a valid marriage, what yeah. the Church considers to be a marriage. And that, that really puts us up against uh, the consensus of modern culture that would like to call all kinds of things marriage that are not marriage. So, for example, the union of, of, uh, of, of two men or two women or, or, or any combination that would be something other than one man, one woman, lifelong fidelity for the sake of raising a child. So what the first question to answer is why, why is there an institution called marriage, not just in the Catholic Church but throughout history, and why has it always been understood as having something peculiar to do with heterosexuality? And the reason, it ought to be fairly obvious to anyone who, who thinks about human biology and the history of human culture, and that is that when men and women get together in intimate union, babies tend to happen, and that's not the case when other kinds of couplings occur. And so there's something unique about the male-female procreative union, namely that it produces babies, and babies come into the world needy, and they need not only physical care, but emotional support and education and, and training and how to be a good person. And that's really unlike any other species. And the people who are best suited to provide that that uh, care and nurture and the ones who bear the immediate responsibility for it are, lo and behold, the people who brought the child into the world, namely the parents. And so not just in Catholic civilization, but throughout world civilization, recognizing that there's something special about that and hallowing it with laws and sanctions and symbols and rites uh, has been the human race's way of acknowledging there's something special about the male-female procreative union, and that Mm -hmm. specialness is what we call marriage. And something like infidelity, for example, or or, um, abandonment, uh, uh, polygamy, other, other abuses against that, more or less denigrate against the integrity of that union, which is not to the welfare of the child. So if a you know, man brings a child into the world and then, you know, abandons the mother and abandons the kid, runs off and seeks after some other kind of experience, well, that child's going to suffer and that woman's going to suffer accordingly, even more so in a civilization where uh, women don't have the kind of rights that men typically do in, 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 in human history and, you know, would be left in penury and dependence and so forth. Yeah. So. 
So uh, marriage is a way of acknowledging the responsibility of the parties for what they brought into the world and the care and nurture that children deserve. When uh, the question of gay marriage was a uh, of, of particular moment in the country of France, there was a popular movement called Manif Poltus that was advocating for traditional marriage. And the slogan of that movement, I think, should be the slogan of the universe. And it was, uh, a, a, a children deserve a mother and a father. Children yeah, deserve how a can you and a argue father. with that? So, so that's, that's really critical. And I think before we get to the question of sacramentality, we have to take the question of marriage as such. And, yeah. and look, to take this position is not to say that the church hates homosexual people or thinks that the children of homosexual people are somehow lesser citizens. None of, that, none of that's true. It is to say, however, that a kid who has the blessing, the benefit, the right, uh, enjoys the rights in his own biological parents— uh, is it a significant advantage? Right? Yeah, he has the yeah. benefit or she has the benefit of having his own mother or father, and we don't want to deprive children of that benefit. Children are not a kind of badge of honor uh, to be or distinction to be doled out by the state uh, to dignify or, or, or sanctify any old kind of union. They are the natural outgrowth of, uh, of a natural union that preexists the state and is, in fact, the foundation for the state for civilization. Now let's move on to the question of the sacrament of matrimony. Uh, why should Christians desire the sacrament of matrimony? Well, here's the, here's the little secret about the sacrament of matrimony. If you are a baptized Christian and you get married validly, yeah. your marriage is sacramental whether you want it to be or not. <laughs> right? And that's because you've become a member of Christ. You've become a member of Christ. Uh, when, through a baptism, we're born again in Him. And so when you enter into a marital union between two baptized people— of necessity, Christ is at the center of that union because he's at the center of those individuals' identity. That, that includes their physical bodies. So there's a passage in, in St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians where he says, don't go after prostitutes, he says this to the church, because if you do, you will unite the body of Christ with a prostitute. Now think about that. He, his, his understanding of the, the union of Christ with our physical body is so intimate, so realistic, that, that he can contemplate this kind of profanation, right? So if that's the improper thing to do with your body, the right thing to do with your body is to unite your body that is Christ's member to a body that is also Christ's member. And in doing so, you can reflect to the world and to your own children uh, the kind of self-giving love and virtue that is the Christian experience. And that's why uh, marriage has this character of a sacrament, because a sacrament is a sign that makes present the thing signified. And in this case, the sign is the love of Jesus for his church, the, the bridegroom for the, for the bride, and that can be figured in the life of, uh, of, of a Christian family in the creation of what we call the domestic church. Um, now, the situation you're contemplating, I think, is one in which you, you may have Catholic or perhaps non-Catholic families um, that may be civilly married, but they did not obey the church's teaching about how to uh, how to contract a Catholic w wedding, and therefore, under canon law, their marriage is invalid. Um, and because no, it's invalid by necessity, it's not sacramental. Mm. And so the question you're asking is why, you know, why should their parents of these children seek to have their marriages rendered valid, regularized, so that they could also be sacramental? If you're a Catholic person, it should go without saying that we obey the law of the Church. Right, that that's that's part of our Catholic identity. What does it mean to be Catholic and to submit ourselves to the churches of authority if we 
if we flaunt that authority at every turn, and especially the most important decisions of our lives. The reason the Church asks Catholic people to be married in the Catholic Church is because it is a sacrament of the Catholic Church. And so the wedding itself should reflect its sacramental character and its union with the Eucharist and confession and the priesthood and the rest of the Christian life. Uh, the, 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 the Christian marriage is as much an ecclesial state of life as is ordination. And so you might ask the question, you know, if, you're, if you are going to be ordained a priest, um, why does the church insist, let's say I was, I, I was eligible matter for the priesthood, which I'm not because I'm a married guy, but let's say I wanted to become a priest, and I said to the bishop, well, yeah, I know you've scheduled my ordination in the cathedral, and I'm supposed to prostrate myself in front of the bishop's throne in the cathedral and in front of the people of God, and you'll lay hands on me. But I'd rather do it at the top of Space Mountain in Disney World. <laughs> now, nobody would think that that was a reasonable thing for the priest to say, because the nature of the sacrament is such that it's best expressed in its close union to the bishop and the cathedral and the people of God. Well, but the state of Christian marriage is just as closely related to the church as is the sacrament of ordination. It's also an ecclesial state. So it doesn't make any more sense for the Christian couple to say, we want to get married on the beach, or we want to get married underwater. I actually knew of an underwater wedding one time. Ooh. They weren't Catholic people. They got married in scuba gear. Um, <laughs> you know, or we want to get married at the you know, top of Mount Kilimanjaro yeah, or Bucky's. something. Right, or at Bucky's, exactly. <laughs> we want have a Bucky's wedding. Um, that, that makes as much sense, since marriage is a Catholic, is an ecclesial state, as it would for that priest to mm. want to get married at the top yeah. of a roller coaster. Yeah. Uh, any uh, resources you could pass on to our friend Beth? Um, yeah. Uh, just because I go into all these things in great depth, how about the book, The Catholic Church Saved My Marriage, that uh, I wrote, and you know, Tom was a, a, a partner and encourager on the whole time. So. <laughs> there you go. Beth, thanks so much for your email. We're going to get to the phones in just a second here. Lines are open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Are you familiar with Church Pop? It is fantastic. Some of the stories that they're following right now. Five reasons to celebrate Christmas until Candlemas. Do you even know what Candlemas is? You may want to check out this article. Also, here's one called, uh, Was Jesus Really Born on December 25th? We have the intriguing evidence. You can check it out. Uh, Church Pop is available right now on Snapchat, on Instagram, and on the web directly at churchpop.com, churchpop.com. And right now, you can get Church Pop content directly to your email inbox. Visit EWTN.com and click on the word subscribe. That's all you have to do. And if you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Bring up my chat screen here. Here we go. We're going to go to um, uh, Linda. Is that right, Linda? Or Ellen? Ellen is a first-time caller. Hold on just a second here. Here we go. Ellen is a first-time caller from Greer, South Carolina. And uh, Ellen, Happy New Year to you. What's on your mind today? Happy New Year to you, too. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes, go right ahead. Oh, okay. All righty, thank you. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day. She lives in another state, and she is Lutheran, and we were talking about the Eucharist. And uh, she knew, because she, she has Catholic friends, and she knew that in at Mass, she could not have communion. And I asked her, I said, what do you believe about communion? And she says, I said, in Catholicism, it's the real presence of the Lord. And she said, we believe in that. 
And I was thinking, well, then, hmm, maybe, maybe you can. But I said, um, but I'm not sure. And I had remembered years ago looking up transubstantiation and the Lutheran Church because I had gone with my husband and uh, with friends, and we had gone to a Lutheran service, and I was amazed at how similar it is to Mass. And I wondered about communion. So I knew that there was something slightly different between transubstantiation in Catholicism, and I forgot the word in, in uh, Lutheranism. Yes. So yes. I told her, I said, listen, I listen to this radio station, I'll call them up and find out if, if you can go legally and with good conscience, because she would not. Yes, thank you. I really appreciate the question. So there are a couple of things we have to disentangle here, and I really appreciate the question and your concern for your friends, so thank you very much for that. So the first thing we have to we have to disentangle is the idea that believing in the real presence is sufficient is sufficient in order to illicitly receive holy communion. Now that that statement right there is not true even for Catholics. So see, I'm Catholic. I practice the Catholic faith. I'm a baptized, confirmed, card carrying Catholic, and yet there are times when I, as a Catholic, should refrain from receiving Holy Communion, even though I believe in the real presence. And the Church tells me, for example, that if I'm conscious of grave sin, that I cannot safely go to communion, even though I believe in the real presence. So belief in the real presence is not sufficient, not sufficient for even a Catholic to go to Holy Communion. Now, there are, there are there, there's, there's some other problems, specifically with, with your Lutheran friend, um, it's true that Lutherans believe in the real presence. They deny the dogma of transubstantiation, but they do believe strongly in the doctrine of the real presence. But there's, there's something else about the Mass that they adamantly deny. And this, in fact, is a real, real problem. It's a major sticking point between Lutherans and Catholics. Uh, Martin Luther once wrote, and this is a quote. I'm quoting from Martin Luther right now. Luther said, The Mass is an evil thing. The Mass is an evil thing, Luther said, and God is displeased with it because it is performed as if it were a sacrifice and a work of merit, and therefore it must be abolished. Now, you can pull a thousand quotes from Luther about the Mass that are like that and worse. Lutherans from the very beginning have rejected the most important doc doctrine about the Mass— that the Catholic Church teaches, namely that the Mass is a sacrifice. Luther was correct that Catholics hold the Mass to be a sacrifice and a work of merit. Yes, he was right about that. He was wrong to reject it. And so a, a Lutheran who knows his own tradition and knows the Catholic tradition is bound by the terms of his own tradition mm -hmm. to review the sacrificial act of the Mass as a kind of blasphemy. That, that's how Luther believed it, and the Lutheran Confessions of Faith regard it the same way, that the Catholic Mass is, is a profanation and an evil thing. That's what Luther thought. Mm. Because we teach it's a sacrifice, and Lutherans adamantly deny that the Mass is a sacrifice. Now, one of the things about sacrifice in sacred Scripture is that you cannot offer sacrifice if you come in a state of impurity. Now, in the Old Testament, that was ritual impurity, but in the New Covenant— the sacrifice that we bring to God requires a moral purity, a purity of heart. 
That's why St. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7, he says, Purify yourself of everything that contaminates flesh or spirit out of reverence for God. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual or rational act of worship. And so in order to make a proper offering to God, we have to come with morally pure hearts that presuppose uh, the doctrine of penance, reconciliation, satisfaction, all things that Lutherans deny. Lutherans deny that we can do penance for our sins. They deny the power of the church to absolve. They deny the necessity of moral purity in order to offer sacrifice. They, in fact, teach, they teach objectively, they teach explicitly that we come to God as beggars with morally corrupt hearts and that God never smiled on a man for his charity or virtues. That's another quote from Martin Luther. Wow. So our doctrine of the Christian life is very different. Our doctrine of Christian worship is very different. Our doctrine of the Mass is very different. Even our doctrine of the Real Presence is very different. And, of course, they don't have access to the sacrament of confession that enables them to purify their hearts appropriately for Holy Mass. Ellen, thanks so much for your call. In a moment, Linda in Omaha, also Harrison in Texas. Larry is uh, in Kansas City on the Missouri side. We have two lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN for Call to Communion. Stay with us. It's called the Communion on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Congratulations going out to a longtime member of the EWTN Radio family. That would be Sacred Heart Radio in Cincinnati, celebrating 23 years with us. And, of course, they partner with us on the Sunrise Morning Show. Congratulations to Bill Levitt and his great team there at Sacred Heart Radio from all of your friends here at EWTN. Well, we're going to get back to the phones in a second, but first I want to get to this question from John. He actually asks three different questions. John watching us on YouTube this afternoon. He says, what patristic evidence is there for papal supremacy? Some next, Second one. Is it against Catholic teaching to use a transgender person's preferred pronouns? And finally, how would you handle having a trans child? That's from John watching on YouTube. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Is there patristic evidence for papal supremacy? Um, So much that you can literally fill volumes with it. And if you would like a volume of patristic evidence for papal supremacy, I recommend Steve Ray's book, Upon This Rock, which is nothing so much as an anthology of patristic quotations about the supremacy of Peter and the Bishop of Rome. So, uh, and I would I would like to note that this patristic evidence comes not only from uh, uh, Latin fathers of the Church, which would be you know of course the Pope is the Latin patriarch, uh, but also from Eastern fathers of the Church, Greek, Syriac, and even Arabic speaking. Um, uh, uh, fathers. So people, so, so groups within the church that are historically very distant from Rome and from the Latin world uh, nevertheless acknowledged uh, papal supremacy. You can find a, some brief summary of this in an article that I wrote for the Call to Communion website called um, Archbishop Minorath and the Bishop of Rome. I think that was the title. Hang on, I'll get you the title. It was just a second, I'm pulling it up right now. Archbishop Menorath on Rome, the Papacy in the East. Yeah, by okay. David Andrews at calledcommunion.com. Very good. Also, the website fisheaters.com ah. has a, a lot of uh, 
patristic quotations, particularly from the Eastern Fathers. I always like to throw in, emphasize the Eastern Fathers because sure. that's you know some where the where the where the argument lies, of course, with the Eastern Church. So loads a, of patristic evidence with a website named fisheaters.com. You know it's going to be fun. Yes, yes. They have a quote from Chrysostom in there about Peter being the fisherman of the universe. Ooh, yeah, I like that. Um, so next question about, is it against Catholic teaching to, to, to use, use a, the preferred pronouns requested by a transgendered person? So I am not conscious, uh, I'm not aware of there being any explicit uh, instruction from the bishops or the Pope on that question. Okay. I think it would be a matter of prudence. Uh, you could, a person could make the case, I think, that um, by being asked to do this, I'm being asked to participate in a kind of lie, right? Uh, but I think you could also make the case that um, that if I'm trying to be pastorally present to someone um, who is uh, enthralled to an ideology that, uh, you know, St. Paul talked about becoming all things to all people. Paul who told Timothy, uh, excuse me, Paul who told the Galatians, if you let yourself be circumcised, you will have cut yourself off from Christ and Jesus will be of no value to you. Precisely because the Galatians thought that their salvation depended upon circumcision, that very same Paul would turn around and circumcise Timothy, because see, Timothy didn't have any misunderstandings. He had no he had no false impressions about what assured his salvation. He okay. recognized that circumcision was a thing indifferent. Paul circumcised Timothy so that they could go enter into a synagogue and preach the gospel to Jewish people. Okay. Right, and so I think you could also make a case that look, I'm gonna. Uh, I don't. I don't. I think this language is a kind of an abuse and a sort of injustice. Um, but within the worldview of the person with whom I'm dialoguing, it's kind of a condition for entering into dialogue. Like you know, there are people out there that will literally, if you don't use the right pronoun, they won't have a conversation with you. And so I may. I may have to make some concessions just to sort of their cultural milieu in order to have an open, genuine dialogue, knowing that they don't mean the same thing by the word that I mean by it. Like when mm. they say he or him, they mean something different from that than I do. It's almost like learning a new language. So I think you could kind of make either one of those cases, and you'd have to make a pastoral judgment in prudence about, you know, what your objective is. When it comes to, you know, if I have I had a member of my own family presenting this way, um, it, in my mind, uh, there is a major distinction between the medical or the psychological condition of experiencing gender dysphoria, mm -hmm. which is a real thing that people mm -hmm. suffer. Yeah. Some people feel very uncomfortable with their biological sex, and they would very much like to be another sex. That's one thing, all right? But then there's this other thing. And the other thing is that in the modern world, we have uh, seen arise a radical ideology that is very political and, and has to do with uh, the use of language and and the imposition of policy. And it, it, it seems to me that there is a, a an attempt to conflate these two issues, to act as though the, the existence of gender dysphoria, the medical condition, that there, that there is only one appropriate ideological response to that, and that is to embrace sort of the full-on uh, uh, gender theory program of, of the modern left. Mm. I don't think that's true, right? I, I, th I think there's a lot of things about that ideological program that are, that are very deeply harmful, and not the least of which is its, its, uh, its uh, sort of dictatorial, totalitarian imposition of language mm. and, uh, and the insistence that anybody that doesn't play ball 
um, you know, is a heretic that needs to be socially outcast and canceled and deprived of their civic rights or their income or their livelihood or their reputation or, or what have you. Uh, I think that's very unjust. And so, look, I, I personally, uh, you know, my heart goes out to people that suffer gender dysphoria, and I want to be very close and pastorally present to them. And if I'm trying to be that with anybody, I'm in a stance of listening. I'm in a stance of empathy. I'm not in a stance of of, of mm. my, I don't go into the situations trying to tell people that they're wrong and that they must do what I want. That's not a good way to win friends and influence people. I want to be there lovingly, compassionately, openly listening in dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but, but I don't want that same individual to impose upon me a list of ideological shibboleths as a condition for recognizing my humanity. So I want to insist that there be a mutual recognition of one another's dignity, and when it comes to the ideology rather than the medical condition, that you and I can disagree and still be good to one another. And that that seems to be called into question today, mm, right? Yeah, the, the, as I see, the position of the radical left is that you must agree with me or else you are, you are not entitled to the dignity of a human being. You and must agree with me and be happy about it. You must agree with me and be happy about it. Oh. I want to say, look, it, 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 there, you know, um, there's, there's no scientific evidence to draw a policy conclusion like in, invariably from. Mm-hmm. Right? The policy is part of an ideology. I don't have to accept the ideology to accept the person. Yeah. Very good. And uh, we are glad that you're watching us today on YouTube, John. We hope that is uh, helpful for you. If you want to listen to those answers again, we'll uh, have the podcast posted for you in a couple of hours or so at EWTN.com slash radio. Look for the words Podcast Central. Back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Linda listening in the great uh, Omaha Spirit Catholic Radio. Hey there, Linda. Happy New Year to you. What's on your mind today? Uh, the same to you. I have a question that I think a lot of people would like the answer to. I have a friend who's not Catholic. She married a Catholic man. She had two children. They were baptized, went to the Catholic school, First Communion, and all those things. Now they're in their 40s, and they want nothing to do with the Catholic Church. So do they are they still held responsible for missing Mass on Sunday? For all the things we do as Catholics, or are they um, dismissed from that? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, moral absolutes do not stop being moral absolutes because someone fails to recognize them as moral absolutes. Um, So, murder is wrong whether or not I know that murder is wrong. And uh, there are civilizations where people have been a bit dim on whether or not murder was wrong. I'm thinking in particular of, say, um, late medieval or early Renaissance Italy, where among the aristocratic classes there was a strong culture of vendetta. Right? Um, St. Rita of Cascia was subjected to this because she had a husband who was deeply drawn into the vendetta culture of violence. And it was legal, it was legal for aristocrats to carry arms and to kill one another. It wasn't legal for the peasantry to do it, but it was legal for the aristocrats to do it. Many hunter-gatherer societies throughout the world who don't have uh, advanced civilizations with you know sort of detailed, elaborated forms of government and judiciary um, vendetta is the only mode of jurisprudence that they know of. 
And so, you know, if there's a slight against someone's dignity or a theft or some sort or a murder or something, the only recourse that they have is vengeance. Okay. Now, in both of those civilizations, whether you're talking about a hunter-gatherer civilization or, say, Renaissance Italy, murder is always and still wrong. But people who lived in that civilization would have less knowledge of that moral reality and might be held less accountable by God accordingly. Now, I'm not saying that they get a free slate. I'm not saying they get a, you know, a, jet, a get-out-of-hell-free card. <laughs> but the question of assessing a person's culpability, we do take into consideration what is their subjective state of mind, what is their degree of knowledge. And, I mean, we do this in civil courts. Right? I mean, ignorance doesn't excuse you from obeying the law, but it can be a mitigating circumstance that a, a judge might take into consideration when imposing mm-hmm. sentence. Mm-hmm. So personally, I'm not God. I, don't, I can't pass judgment on somebody's soul. Right? I don't know what God will do on the day of judgment. But when it comes to my personal interactions with people, when I meet ex-Catholics, and I know that, that, that they no longer recognize the authority of the Catholic Church— um, that there's, I know the data on this. There's a strong likelihood that they were, they were either badly instructed or badly treated, and that subjectively it may be very difficult for a person like that to actually form the judgment. The church is a divine authority, mm. and uh, and and they may have what seemed to them to be very compelling reasons to have left the church, and the best pastoral approach for me is to take seriously what they tell me to listen to them with empathy and compassion, to try to help them as best I can, uh, you know, come to know God and the truth about the Catholic faith, but ultimately to leave the judgment of souls up to God. You know, from a, from a legal point of view, is an ex-Catholic bound by the law of the Catholic Church? Yes, yes, because f- within Catholic canon law, there is no such thing as an ex-Catholic. There are just practicing Catholics and non-practicing Catholics, but they're still Catholics, they're still bound by canon law. Sure, sure. Um, but when it comes to the judgment of God... I, I don't have that privileged position, right? And I, and I do recognize that moral theology sees that there's a distinction between sin and sin in terms of gravity, and that our that our degree of knowledge and and uh, and freedom can impact our degree of culpability. Linda, thanks so much for your call from Omaha. Call to communion here on EWTN. We did have a call standing by that I really wanted to get to, but I think the call dropped. If you could call us back at eight three three. 288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. Oh, science question, wasn't it? Yes, from an atheist. You know, we don't have anything in the hopper right now. Why don't I just talk about Catholicism and science for just a minute? Sure, right? sure, sure. I think sure. that's where he was headed. So I'd like, to, if he's still listening or she's still listening, maybe we can try address that question. Okay. I think that what we were going to get was, can the Catholic Church survive uh, you know, its confrontation with ongoing scientific discovery? Yes. Right? yes. And, and... Uh, so what I wanted to point out was that the history of the scientific revolution in the West um, is, in fact, the history of Catholic intellectual life. And, uh, you know, people date the origins of the scientific revolution to, you know, a little bit differently. I mean, everybody concludes that by the time you get to the 16th century, whatever it is that becomes the scientific revolution is, is well underway. Um, but, uh, but there's a great deal of scholarship now showing that the intellectual preconditions for that were laid in the 14th and 15th century in Catholic scholastic life. So to take one example, there's a scholastic theologian by the name of Jean Bourdin who who comes up with the theory of impetus, 
It's a physical theory about the motion of bodies that is the direct antecedent of the doctrine of inertia. Mm. And Buridan's thinking about impetus was not something that he arrived at through empirical means, but something that he arrived at through theological speculation. And uh, there's a great deal of evidence, and there's many articles and books that have been written on this topic, about the, the, the transformations in Catholic scholastic theology, specifically in the 14th and 15th century, that led away from a priori demonstrative reasoning, which was the way that scientific reasoning was carried on, say, in the Aristotelian or the Platonic conception, uh -huh. to a more particularistic and empirical approach that would eventually be validated in the scientific revolution. These, and these developments arise from within the Catholic intellectual framework. Um, and uh, early scientific figures like Galileo, like Descartes, like Copernicus, are directly reliant upon that antecedent Catholic scholastic tradition. And if you want to read someone on this topic, um, the Catholic scientist and philosopher and historian Stanley Yaki, J-A-K-I, has written about it most extensively. Um, and, you know, so it's not only characters like uh, Burada or Galileo or Copernicus who were Catholics, but as we push further into the modern era, some of the great developments in, uh, in modern science, of course, have also been conducted by Catholics. I'm thinking of somebody like Louis Pasteur, who invents a process of uh, vaccination, a microbiologist. Um, uh, in modern physics, uh, somebody like uh, Georges Lemaitre, who is, of course, a Catholic priest, who is the one that comes up with what is now understood to be the Big Bang Theory, a real cardinal doctrine of, of, um, of modern um, uh, 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 physical theory. Sure. And, um, and even Pope Urban VIII, uh, the, uh, the infamous Urban VIII, who, who catches a lot of flack in history, for um, for his uh, response to Galileo, uh, has a theory of science that I, I see echoed in the uh, Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics. So, in other words, when Galileo presented his theories, and and um, and Cardinal Bellarmine, his response to Galileo was, "Well, Galileo, you know, you might you might be right, you might be right about." the the way that the universe is put together, but you haven't produced any physical evidence yet. You've just come up with a theoretical model. Um, you know, go give us some some physical evidence, and then we'll and then we'll talk, and we might be willing to reinterpret the Bible accordingly. Uh, Urban the Eighth um, completely articulated what's been understood now understood to be the instrumentalist view of modern physics, namely. Uh, that, that physical theories don't actually capture the underlying nature of reality. What they do is offer a kind of uh, mathematical model that can that can predict, say, the motion of particles or something, but remains agnostic on what the underlying physical reality is. You actually find that same theory in Urban VIII in his discussions with Galileo when he says, okay, what you've done is you've created a mathematical model that has great predictive value. What you mm -hmm. haven't done is demonstrate that it actually connects to physical reality because Galileo didn't have the empirical demonstration. And uh, when I read that, I thought, well, that's that's fascinating. That's the Niels Bohr interpretation of quantum physics right back there in the 16th century <laughs> with, with Pope Urban VIII. So, yeah, the Catholic doctrine is that reason and faith can never be in conflict. And if they appear to be, then then somebody's made a mistake, and it's not necessarily the scientist. Maybe the theologian has made a mistake. We go back to the drawing board. We rework the theology of the exegesis accordingly because truth is truth wherever you can find it. So Catholic Church is always open to whatever science discovers. It's not threatened by that in the slightest, and in fact is uh, is intellectually 
the precondition for the development of modern scientific enterprise. Called to communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, if you want to sneak in at the very end here, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Coming up next on most of these uh, EWTN stations, it's Open Line Tuesday with our friend Father Wade Menezes. Today he'll be answering your questions about living out the Catholic faith, and Father Wade will discuss making our New Year's resolutions with Mary. Coming up next here on EWTN Radio, 3 p.m. Eastern, again, uh, on most of these EWTN stations. Here's a question now from Daniel. Dear Dr. Andrews, you've mentioned before on this show that uh, St. Thomas Aquinas described sin as, quote, any irrational act. I understand this to mean that rationality or irrationality is the basis for determining whether an act is sinful. If this is the case, then where does the moral component of sin come in? Are we morally obligated to act rationally? And if so, why? Yeah, thanks. That's a fantastic question. So you got it exactly correct. You got it exactly correct that, that, that in, in, uh, in Thomistic theology, uh-huh. uh, vice and virtue, sin and righteousness are coextensive with the rational and the irrational, that, that the virtuous act is the reasonable act and the vicious act is the unreasonable one. Now, you, you, you point out that that itself doesn't give you the concept of moral obligation, that that's, a, that's an added concept. Where does that come from? Interestingly, if you go back and read classical ethics, somebody like uh, Aristotle, read Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, he writes the first major treatise on ethical philosophy in the Western tradition without ever invoking the idea of moral obligation. It's a massive book all about the ethical life, and yet the concept thou shalt, thou shalt not, does not emerge. Mm. And um, there is a, uh, a modern um, uh, psychologist, former president of the APA, named uh, Martin Seligman, who's famous for his involvement with positive psychology. He has a book, very Aristotelian, called Authentic Happiness, where he lays out the scientific evidence on what tends to a flourishing human life, right? And, and he says, if you do these things, you will live a flourishing human life. That's what positive psychology has demonstrated. But Seligman goes on to say, he's an atheist and a relativist, he says, I can't tell you that you should. Maybe you want to live a miserable life. But if you, <laughs> if you choose to live a happy life, this is what will bring you happiness. Okay. But I can't tell you that you ought to, right? And, and so that, that the thou shalt aspect is an added thing. That comes into the philosophical discourse from the Judeo-Christian tradition, of course, of course, right? Because the, the way ethical life is construed within sacred scripture is very much thou shalt, thou shalt not. And when Christian theology, which is biblical through and through, comes into confrontation with, with classical philosophy, it doesn't reject it. It says, okay, this, this makes rational sense of the biblical tradition, that the reason that God demands some things and forbids others is precisely because the things he commands afford human flourishing in this rational schema and the things uh-huh. that he forbids uh, frustrate that. And so the Ten Commandments, for example, are understood to be a kind of articulation of the key points of the otherwise natural law. Mm, very good. Call to communion here on EWTN. Fascinating question here from Gary. Why doesn't God reveal himself to us physically so that we can see him? And as a bonus, there would be no atheism. Um, well, because God doesn't have a body, right? And, and so anything that God revealed to us physically wouldn't be God. Hmm. So, 
you know, in the Old Testament, there's, a, there's something called a theophany, which is when some physical token appears in place of God as a kind of a symbol, if you will. A good example would be the burning bush that Moses encounters in the desert. Um, but God isn't a burning bush. Uh, you remember when, um, when Elijah the prophet calls down uh, fire upon the prophets of Baal, and then he runs 40 days and 40 nights to the mountain of God, to Mount Horeb. He goes up in a cave, and here comes a pillar of fire, and here comes a flame, and here comes a wind, and here comes a, all this. And each time he's told, but God was not in the wind, and God was not in the flame, and he wasn't in the cloud. Um, demonstrating prophetically that no theophany, no physical appearance, no physical phenomena representation is an adequate stand-in for uh, the utterly mysterious, ineffable, and infinite being of God. And uh, so if, if God did cause some physical manifestation, then uh, he, it actually puts us at risk of idolatry. Mm. And here's an even more subtle concept. In Catholic theology, even the concept God is not to be equated with God. And there's a very real danger to the Catholic theologian, to the speculative person, of falling in love with one's ideas about God as if they were God. Hmm. And there's a kind of intellectual idolatry that's very, very possible. Uh, which is why there's something else in the Catholic tradition called the apophatic tradition or the, or the negative tradition that says the, the, the only way we can really approach God is through negation, through denying any likeness between God and creatures so that we recognize that, you know, God's not a pillar of fire. He's not a burning fire pot. He's not a smoking bush. Um, he's not a concept. And, and we're left with a kind of, um, a kind of holy ignorance uh, where we approach God in darkness, without feeling, without thought, um, and that it becomes the basis of some of the Catholic mystical tradition. Wow, fascinating. A real quick one as we're heading out the door from um, Carol. Revelation describes the Blessed Virgin crushing the head of Satan. I've heard non-Catholic mega-pastors say that the figure is Israel crushing the evil one. Where does that come from? Oh, yeah. Well, of course it's Israel, and of course it's the Church, and of course it's the Blessed Virgin. <laughs> right? It's, 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 not, it's not one or the other. So a good analog would be the suffering servant in Isaiah. Uh -huh. Isaiah tells us explicitly that that suffering servant is Israel, and the New Testament tells us explicitly that it is Jesus, and it's both and. It's, it's, it's a singular individual who stands in as the ideal representative for a collective. I love the faith of both and. Both and. Works for me. Dr. David Anders, thank you, my friend. Thanks, Tom. Good to have you back on it's the good air. Good to be back. Good to be back with everybody. Uh, we do this program Monday through Friday here on EWTN. If you're new to the network, uh, it's right here at 2 p.m. Eastern each and every weekday. You can check out the podcast by going to EWTN.com forward slash radio. Then look for the words Podcast Central. Click on that. You're good to go. On behalf of our fantastic team here, glad to have you back, Charles. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Thank you for joining us. See you tomorrow on the Wednesday edition of Call to Communion. Until then, have a great day and God bless.